Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer. Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am Jeff Wall, your host. I am a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University. Welcome to uh, Game Changers. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a new paper or new study that came out of New England Journal of Medicine talking about uh, a brand new antihypertensive. And you may say to yourself, you know, you know, so what? You know, I mean, there's 8 million antihypertensives on the market. You know, why, why would I really care about this one? And I think it's less about the, the, the drug itself, though it's actually pretty interesting and more about the uh, way this antihypertensive was developed and its mechanism of action, which is absolutely unique. And I think uh, will actually uh, uh, portend uh, some of the new drugs we're going to see used in, in the future just because it's a novel way to approach drug development. So, but again, this is a new antihypertensive. Um, uh, many of you out there, I know, treat hypertension on a daily basis and know that it's the single largest risk factor contributing to death and disability adjusted years, well, life years worldwide, resulting in 9.4 million deaths and the loss of 200 million healthy life years annually. And those numbers are kind of shocking because, I mean, you know, when, when you say, you know, wow, hypertension kills 10 million, you know, people, you know, globally a year, you'd think if that was anything else, if that was, you know, you know, cancer or, or you know, a, a new infectious diseases, we would be throwing the kitchen sink at figuring out how to treat it and how to do a better job of doing it. I think because it's kind of a slow creeping issue, I mean, again, you know, very few people die because they have a, a high blood pressure for a day or a week or a month or a year, you know, it, it takes time for that to happen. But, um, and I think that kind of leads to some of the clinical inertia that you certainly see in, in, in many practices where, you know, okay, yeah, we'll put you on an antihypertensive and if we can get you down a little bit. That's great. But, you know, but you know, I'm not going to go, you know, I'm not going to fall head over heels to make sure that you're, you're at goal just because, you know, you may not take the medication or you might have some other problems and stuff like that. So again, it is worth noting that hypertension is one of the biggest risk factors for death and, you know, worldwide and data from multiple sources suggests especially in the United States, that we have, you know, uh, that we uh, get less than 50% of patients to their goal blood pressure. Um, and that's certainly something I've seen. And, and again, multiple studies have suggested that. So, uh, and, and I think it's, it's, you know, there's a number of factors involved with it. Again, I think clinical inertia plays a role. I think, uh, all, you know, changing targets makes things difficult for providers. Okay, so are we going for 140 over 90 now? Are we going for 130 over 80 now? You know, you know, what, what, you know which target am I, am I using? You know, should I be targeting super low blood pressure levels in the very elderly? You know, th you know, there's a lot of questions that I, I think uh, we have some answers to, but I think make it make it challenging for providers on a day to day basis to go, okay, this is kind of the way I should be treating hypertension in, in most of my patients. And of course, probably the biggest issue is adherence. You know, it's very difficult to get patients to take medications for a disease they almost always don't have symptoms for. So, you know, they say to themselves, well, I'm getting side effects from this and it's costing me money every month. Why should I take a drug for something that I can't feel that it's not causing any problems. So, you know, we, we, we know that there's an, uh, that it's, it's common, it's a huge cause of mortality and morbidity, and we don't do a good job of treating it. So in any disease state where that's going to come around, you have to think to yourself, you know, you know, we should be looking for novel ways to treat it. And uh, the paper that we're going to discuss, and we'll leave uh, the link as always in the show notes, you know, notes that there's, it's been over 15 years 
uh, since a new uh, antihypertensive has hit the U.S. market. And the last one uh, was Aliskinrin, which is a direct green uh, REN inhibitor uh, that nobody I know uses. I don't think I've ever seen a patient on it. And that's because of its very high uh, uh, side effect uh, uh, profile, including really high risks of angioedema and stuff like that. So, I mean, the bottom line is, is you know, yeah, Aliskinrin came out, but nobody uses it. So now we're talking probably over 20, 25 years since a new uh, mechanism of action drug hits hit, hit the market. So this makes thing, this, this talking about this drug kind of exciting. Um, like Aliskinrin, like ACE inhibitors, uh, this drug does target the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. And that makes sense. I mean, that we've always known that's a key regulator for blood pressure and that um, upregulation increases blood pressure by, by basically constricting vascular uh, beds and, and increasing vascular tone, but it also has effects on aldosterone synthesis and fluid retention and things along those lines. Uh, but we've also known that even though we've had effective treatments, uh, you know, targeting that pathway, ACEs and, and antigen receptor blockers, that uh, over time, uh, there's downregulation of those receptors. And, you know, there's always been some concern that these medications may lose their antihypertensive potency over time. So, you know, that that's, all, you know, while they're effective drugs and, you know, millions of patients are on them, uh, there is some, you know, a concern that, that over time they may lose their effectiveness. And I think, uh, especially in the elderly, the concerns about you know, acute kidney injury and hyperkalemia and stuff like that do, do make them kind of tricky to use. So even though this new drug targets the renin aldosterone system, it does it from a, from a different angle. And the way it does that is by a, a basically a new approach to, to a drug development called therapeutic gene silencing. Um, and uh, this was actually uh, first discovered by uh, two Nobel Prize winning scientists who got the Nobel Prize for doing this. And they realized that this is an uh, an evolutionary conserved endogenous pathway in which short strands of, of RNA, such as siRNA, uh, if, uh, are responsible for some of the physiologic effects. And if we can basically put uh, uh, some of these siRNA RNA strands, it basically results in gene silencing. So wh whether that gene would normally produce um, a, a chemical that stimulates a receptor or even the receptor itself, that it would basically, you know, turn it off, would basically turn off the development of that chemical, turn off the development of, of receptor uh, uh, development and, and, and placement. So basically, you know, a, a fascinating new target, because if we can, if we can do that, um, we can uh, target medications really kind of at the source, you know, and rather than trying to block receptors or block chemical production, you know, like interleukins and things like that. This really just basically tells the body stop producing um, um, angiotensin to stop producing or, or upregulating or downregulating receptors. So it's again, kind of a fascinating way, way to look at drug development. And there is already a drug on the market that does this. Again, it's a drug that I have not seen clinically used, but I know has, has uh, uh, been on the market for a couple of years. And that's anaclycerin, which is a drug that's for, for uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, which is maybe probably the reasons I, I have not seen it because this is the kind of drug that's used for patients, usually younger patients who just have unbelievably high cholesterols and LDLs and stuff. So a fairly you know small percentage of patients, but it works. It was the first you know major drug on the market that basically inserts these siRNA strands in the cause gene silencing. And in this case, with with for hypercholesterolemia, it prevents the translation of, of PCSK9 
uh, so basically it's a PCSK9 inhibitor, but it's a PCSK9 inhibitor at the source. So it doesn't, you know, it basically turns off the gene that, that causes the translation of PCSK9. So kind of fascinating. And, and I think an, an interesting way to approach things. So, uh, the other interesting thing about these drugs is that they, yeah, at least currently there's, there won't be an oral version of them. Uh, they have to be administered subcutaneously because they just won't tolerate bioavailability. So that's the other thing that's kind of interesting, but the benefit of that is that these drugs may be because they basically turn off the gene, may be incredibly long lasting. And I think that's, that's the other issue is this may really help with adherence because you have patients where you might be able to take one or two drugs, you know, every six months or a year or something like that, and still have pretty good control. And that's kind of what this, what, what, what this, what this new medication, you know, shows. So again, this inclycerinin is, is approved for hypercholesterolemia. Uh, multiple studies have found that, that it actually does a very good job of knocking down uh, total cholesterol and LDL, but uh, we're currently ber- uh, uh, having in studies that, okay, that's terrific, but does it actually decrease heart outcomes like, you know, cardiovascular disease and stroke? And those studies are ongoing, as you might imagine. So that brings us to this brand new drug, uh, Zillabresian. Um, and this drug is, is interesting. Again, it's, it's an siRNA drug that basically uh, covalently links with the um, development of angiotensin II, um, but it actually does it in the liver which is again, you know, completely different than ACEs or ARBs, which basically work in the kidney to, to, to block production of either ACEs or actually re- uh, bind to the uh, ARB receptor to, to keep those chemicals from working. So again, with, with, with this uh, drug, it, it basically causes gene silencing of the production of angiotensin II, thereby reducing the pr- uh, production of it and then leading to you know, crossing fingers, a decrease in blood pressure, more importantly, a decrease in heart outcome. So again, kind of fascinating that, and, you know, instead of trying to block the receptor or block production of enzymes, this goes right to the heart of things and basically just says, Hey, stop producing angiotensin two, um, you know, so that, that it's kind of interesting. So this study, which was published in New England Journal of Medicine is only a phase one study, which again, I think speaks to how even people, you know, at the high, high levels of medicine have, have said, Hey, you know, this, this must be a, you know, this has the potential to be a very, very important drug because, you know, phase one studies usually don't get published in the big five internal medicine journals. So that that's kind of interesting. So like all phase one studies, this was a, a tiny study, didn't have very many patients in it, and it wasn't actually looking at efficacy, though that was a secondary outcome. They were actually looking at, at, at safety. And I think that's certainly reasonable. So this was a four-part multi-center phase one study of, of Zillabesrian which is designed to, again, primarily assess safety. It also looked at pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic characteristics, which they didn't actually report in the study. There was multiple parts to it. And uh, the parts we're going to talk about are part A and part B and part E of, 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 of this study. And again, each one of these uh, parts had a relatively low number of patients in them, but basically were designed to, to look at safety of various uh, dosing levels. Um, it'll work its way into phase two studies as well, where we'll get more of a, a look at, at safety at various dosing regimens as well, as well as efficacy. But this really was just designed to say, are we going to see any weirdo side effects with, with this medication? So the, it was done in the United Kingdom. And because it was a phase one study, uh, this is not going to see, not going to be the population that, that you would probably see with hypertension. Commonly, these were patients ages only 18 to 65. So patients over age 65 were excluded. So again, you know, uh, uh, something we're going to have to take a look at with future studies. They had to have a, a sitting uh, systolic blood pressure of between 130 and 159. So they couldn't have sky high blood pressures. 
Um, they could also have, uh, be in with the diastolic of, of uh, um, up to 100, but they excluded patients with secondary hypertension or super high mean diastolic blood pressures as well. So really, this was a, a very controlled population of, of adults, but not people, people over 65, and uh, their systolics had to be basically 130 to 160. So, I mean, so just kind of keep that in mind. They also excluded patients who basically had any other disease state, so diabetes, anything along those lines, they, they were excluded as well as patients already taking drugs uh, that affect the renin angiotensin system were excluded. So again, a very, very narrow population, but the goal here, you know, really wasn't to say, hey, you know, we should start using this in patients is just the starting, you know, um, um, uh, steps of, of determining whether it should, it should make it to phase three studies. So in part A, which is one of the studies we're going to talk about, they, they, took, uh, they took a look at several different dosing regimens uh, from 10 milligrams of zilobestrian all the way to 800 milligrams. So a pretty wide dosing regimen there. Um, and they did a two to one ratio compared to, to placebo. And so there was 12 patients in each of these dosing cohorts. So 12 in the 10 milligrams, 12 in the 25 milligrams, et cetera. They were allowed uh, to add on antihypertensive therapy uh, at the discretion of the investigator at eight weeks for uncontrolled hypertension. Then uh, in part B, they did pretty much the same thing, but they divided patients into a low salt diet, which uh, they looked at actually 0.25 grams per day. I don't know a single person uh, in the United States who could, who could adhere to a 0.25 gram per day sodium diet. Uh, so again, uh, they must have some pretty motivated patients and then a high salt diet, which was six grams per day, essentially of sodium. Um, and they were, they were put on that uh, for, in a run-in period to about three weeks before the, the, the study was started. And then they were put on a single high dose of zilobestrian versus placebo just to see, you know, what a single dose would do in low salt uh, diet patients versus high salt diet patients. And then finally in phase E, they just looked at everybody, um, all comers, uh, who had more than a blood pressure of 120 getting a single dose of, of, of zilobestrian. So, uh, you know, I think part A is probably the most important one because it was a dose ranging study, especially when looking at safety, whereas part B and E, we're really looking at, you know, if we just give a single high dose, what is that going to do to patients? So uh, kind of interesting in, in, in that. So um, after they completed this, the study itself, they, uh, that ended at week 12, all patients were under do an extended safety follow-up period. Um, to, to see if, you know, if, if, they had, if they had any developing side effects or if how long the, the effect of the drug would last. Uh, they were given guidance regarding, you know, to moderate their alcohol intake, to try and keep their sodium down, et cetera, et cetera, anything that would, any other drugs that would affect blood pressure as well. The primary endpoint, because this was a phase one study, was just frequency of adverse effects. Again, the fact that this drug is, is essentially hepatically, uh, is, is where its mechanism of action is, is in the liver. The theory is, is that you would have much less um, um, renal issues associated with, with uh, this, this drug compared to ACEs and ARBs. Again, that kind of remains to be seen, but, but that was one of the things they wanted to look at. And secondary outpoints were, again, uh, the changes in blood pressure at uh, week 6, 8, 12, and 24. And then they looked at that, at that same issue in patients who were on the low and high salt diet as well. And, and, and then basically before and after co-administration of that single dose. So again, a single dose of, of subcutaneous drug was given 
And their, you know, uh, conclusions going into the study was that 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 it would probably last weeks. So and that's kind of what we'll take a look at here. Uh, they did extensive safety monitoring, as you might imagine, adverse effects, laboratory assessments, vital signs, things along those lines. They did do pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic analysis, which I am not going to go into today because it would just put everybody to sleep um, unless you're a, a, a pharmacokinetics expert and, 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 re, and listening to this just for fun. It was a descriptive study, you know, uh, only so I mean, you know, they 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 didn't do real inferential statistics because of the small numbers. They wouldn't nearly have the power to show a statistical significant difference. They just wanted to take a look at total numbers, even though there was a placebo arm associated with that. So what did they find as far as safety? What did they find in, in this very, very tentative step as far as efficacy? We're going to talk about all that uh, after a word from our sponsor, CE Impact. Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about pharmacist by design at ceimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self. So we're talking about this new drug, Zilibestrian, um, in a phase one study for hypertension just recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In this study from May 30th, 2019 through January 26, 2022, uh, they had a total of 107 patients enrolled. And again, not for high numbers because this is a phase one study. And uh, all, uh, most of them were in the part A group because that, that, that was the different dose uh, ranging study. Um, uh, and in total, they had 56 patients that signed to Zilibestrian versus 28 versus placebo. They had 12 patients in the low high salt diet part of the study and uh, 16 patients and the patients who got a single high dose of it, stuff like that. If they took, if you take a look at, at, at pooled baseline characteristics, the mean age was 53, again, considering that they blocked people from being age 65 in the study, 65 per, or 62% of the patients were men. Uh, what I think is a very good thing is that 25% of patients were black. Um, again, we know that, that uh, black patients uh, tend to have more resistant hypertension and unfortunately have worse uh, outcomes with hypertension compared to other populations. So I'm glad they were able to at least, you know, get at least a decent number, I think. 24 hour means to stock blood pressure across all groups was about 140. And that was true regarding the different characteristics of the study and the different types of patients they had in it. And then, you know, that was really it because again, they had, they had such stringent inclusion exclusion criteria. They really couldn't go much beyond that as far as taking a look at, 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 at uh, baseline characteristics, as far as adverse effects. And again, there's no statistics here, but if they took a look at any adverse effect across part a, which again, I think is, is, is the, the highest number uh, they actually found that, that 86% uh, of patients in the placebo arm versus 75% of patients in the uh, uh, zillabestrian arm complained of, of a side effect. As far as serious side effects, um, which they had specific definitions for, uh, the percentages were virtually identical, um, as, and that's true for any adverse effect or any serious adverse effect. Nobody died, but I mean, again, with these small numbers, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. Uh, as far as what the side effects were, a headache was actually reported the most, interestingly, more in the placebo arm than in the zillabestrian arm. And as you might imagine, the biggest side effect was injection site reactions, which they described as just swelling and pain, which occurred in 9% of patients in the zillabestrian arm compared to nobody in the placebo arm, not surprising there. 
any other adverse effects of interest. Um, they did not see any uh, changes in, in uh, uh, levels of potassium or other electrolytes. They didn't see any renal adverse effects, but again, a, a fairly small number. Um, a little bit of a signal of concern was that uh, in, in, across the board, uh, they did have one patient who had LFT abnormalities. Uh, LFTs rose greater than three, three times their of normal in the zillabestrian arm compared to placebo. You know, again, that may not seem like a lot, but again, when you only have 56 patients in the study, that that is kind of a signal of concern, and I'm sure will be looked at at, at uh, uh, in phase two and in further studies. But on the whole, the primary outcome in the study, note, noting safety, really the only uh, at all common side effect was injection site reactions, which again, not that surprising in this. So and then again, we go into efficacy, and again, worth noting that this is this study is not designed to look to look very comprehensively not only at blood pressure but at heart outcomes. But it does does give us some some interesting uh, results in that after a single dose of, of this medication at doses of the zilobestrine of more than 200 milligrams. And so they remember they, uh, the hot max was 800, but when they started to see doses at 200 milligrams uh, after a single dose, uh, they actually uh, found a significant decrease of over 10 milligram millimeters of mercury in systolic blood pressure and greater than five millimeters of mercury um, in, in diastolic blood pressure at the, at the zilobestrine 200 milligram dose. It, when they took a look at week 24, the observed change, um, especially in the higher doses, uh, above 200 milligrams uh, was a, a decrease in stock blood pressure of 22 and a decrease in diastolic blood pressure of 10. So again, you know, fairly effective. And this was particularly true in the highest doses of 800 milligrams of, of zilobestrian and uh, almost nobody in that study uh, had to receive any additional antihypertensive therapy to keep their blood pressure under control. They did do 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and uh, uh, what they found was actually pretty encouraging in that uh, they found over the uh, the full 24-hour period through week 24, there was good blood pressure control. You know, around the 24 hours every day uh, through week through week 24, um, and and you know again you know found complete control over over again week 24, um, and then when they took a look at at low versus is high salt patients, this is probably not a, not a big surprise. Uh, patients in a low salt diet tended to have a, uh, a more profound decrease in blood pressure compared to those who are in a high salt diet. Um, the numbers were, were similar, but, but um, uh, the low salt diet found about a, a decrease in 18 millimeters of mercury uh, in stock blood pressure and eight in diastolic. And the numbers weren't just, weren't as high in, in, in the, in the, um, a low and the high salt group. So, uh, like many other antihypertensives, there there seems to, to be a correlation between trying to keep your dietary sodium down and, and effectiveness of of, of uh, your antihypertensives. So, uh, you know, to kind of summarize, you know, basically a single subcutaneous dose of this drug through week twenty four. Uh, maintain significant blood pressure decrease decreases uh, kind of across the board at doses above 200 milligrams and particularly notable in patients who received 800 milligrams of the zilobrestrian and especially if they were able to maintain a, a low salt diet. So, you know, again, you know, I think this really, you know, opens up a lot of very interesting avenues, I think, for, for studies and, and for um, uh, the possibility of using a medication that may provide, you know, significant long-term effectiveness 
uh, you know, and, and on it for about daily pill burden and things along those lines. So the authors note that, that you know, what they found was that there was dose related increases, uh, decreases in blood pressure and decreases in serum angiotensinogen and angiotensin levels. Uh, they found that this decrease was, was sustained up to week 24. They noted that, that, um, uh, this seemed to be pretty well tolerated that, that, uh, that again, transient injection site reactions, no hypotension, no hyperkalemia, no worsening of renal function was noted, but again, you know, it, the study wasn't long enough to, or big enough to really show that. So, um, you know, this is pretty interesting. And it also notes that, you know, aldosterone escape, which has been one of the things that's been suggested to happen with ACEs and ARBs that, that you start to lose effectiveness over time did not seem to happen here. So um, uh, that's kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, uh, the thought that this is, is, is uh, uh, utilized hepatically and not renally, the authors note that this may actually, you know, be an advantage from a, from a, from a safety perspective as, as well. So, you know, again, phase one study, you know, just really kind of a tantalizing possibility of, of what may occur here in the future. Um, I guess will be, it'll be at least, you know, several, you know, two or three years before the drug is, is in the hands of, of prescribers ready to go. And I have no doubt it'll be unbelievably expensive because all new drugs are, but I think that especially in, in if they find that the, the medication, uh, you know, is, has effectiveness in a wide swath of patients, if uh, it, it decreases hard outcomes. And um, uh, I think that, that, that uh, especially in patients where adherence may be an issue or patients with resistant hypertension, I think you've got a, uh, you know, a nice new medication here that, you know, if someone were to get two shots a year or maybe even one shot a year, again, the study only came out to 24 weeks and they didn't go longer than that. Who knows? Maybe it has affected us long beyond that. Um, the ability to, to improve adherence with, with one shot, at, at, you know, every six months or one shot a year of, of, of this medication to decrease high blood pressure is, is, is very, is very interesting. And as long as, is, is, you know, at, at week 24 or beyond, they don't see something that you'd sure hate, you know, for someone to develop, you know, LFT abnormalities and say, well, I don't know when this drug is going to wear off. So <laughs> here we go. We'll just have to kind of watch you. So, I mean, you know, a, you know, a drugs with really long, uh, half-lives, you know, there's always kind of a, you know, a double-edged sword there, but it'd be very interesting to see where, where this kind of ends up. So phase two studies are under underway. It'll be interesting to see if 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 it makes it all the way to market. Um, I've uh, I've learned the hard way over the years to to not try to guess whether a drug that looks good in early phase studies will actually make it to market. Uh, I've been wrong several times on on that score, and so uh, um, um, I you know I'm just suffice it to say you know this is tantalizing for a number of reasons, and we'll see if it actually does anything. I think as importantly, this, this, uh, you know, gene silencing effect has, has the ability to treat all sorts of, 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 of different uh, diseases. Um, because really when you think about it, you know, uh, so many of, of, of the targets we have for, for, for drugs is either receptor antagonism or agonism or, uh, uh decreasing, um, um, you know, endogenous, uh, cytokines or other chemicals that are leading to adverse effects. And so, you know, if you have the possibility to gene silence, you know, a variety of other diseases? Could you gene silence the ability, uh, the, uh, the production of uric acid crystals? You know, could you gene, you know, so no gout, could you, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, gene silence, the vasoconstrictor effect in the brain of the CGRP. To, so you could basically have you know long-term migraine, you know, prophylaxis once a year or something along those lines. And that's just stuff kind of up the top of my head. I mean, you could you know take a look at some of the more you know uh, more difficult to treat diseases like you know some of the autoimmune diseases, some of things like multiple sclerosis and stuff like that. There's lots of, of potential applications. So it'll be very interesting to see in the next few years if this if this, if gene silencing becomes uh, one of the dominant ways to come up with new medications on the market. So stay tuned. That's it for this week of uh, Game Changers. Hope you like what you heard. Also a shameless plug, which I made last week as well. Um, many of you know, I produce electronic music, mostly house music uh, under the name Prophet of Jupiter. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a, a new single released by Electronic Eagle uh, Eden Records, Electronic Eden, excuse me. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm on all platforms, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, et cetera, et cetera. So take a listen. Hope you like what you hear. We will see you next week. But remember, until then, uh, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We will see you next week. Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at ceimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.